This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Tonight, the two candidates for mayor face off in a forum on public safety at UIC. Their viewpoints are on either end of the spectrum, with Paul Vallis supporting so-called tough-on-crime policies and Brandon Johnson supporting initiatives that invest in communities. So what is behind this messaging? And what does public safety even mean? Joining us is Andrew Papakristos, sociology professor at Northwestern and faculty director of Corners, the Center for Neighborhood Engaged Research and Science. Welcome to the show, Professor. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to start off with terminology. So if you listen to any debate or news story about the election, you see the words crime and public safety come up. Are we all on the same page when we say public safety, though? We we are absolutely not on the same page. <laughs> what does it mean to different about. people? So for for most people, what it means is how they feel. Do they feel see, safe walking down their block in their school and their place of work, riding the CTA? So it, people often talk about it as as a feeling, but most often, I think, as you already suggested, we measure it as crime, right? We measure it as crime, and especially in places like Chicago, but in the country is violent crime, and usually we're using indicators like homicide rates or reported incidents, which is actually measuring unsafety, but, but really public safety is how, how people feel. Mm. So what, what is, when we talk about crime, what should we be focused on? Well, one thing I would love people to focus on is, is, you know, crime is a broad category. It includes everything from, you know, potentially stolen cars or vandalized property to homicide. So, you know, we can't treat all crime as if it were the same. Some crime moves in different directions, mm-hmm. right? Gun violence spiked. But so home invasions went down during COVID. Um, so we need to really understand what specifically we're talking about when we're talking about crime or talking about violence. Not even all violence is alike. So we need to be a lot more specific in what we're talking about because that leads to different sorts of strategies and responses. Well, let's dig into that because to your point, there are lots of other kinds of crime that impact people's lives, right? As you mentioned, um, in addition to that, wage theft, corporations mm-hmm. not paying their taxes, so why do you think that some of these other types of crime aren't top of mind? Well, that's a great question. There's a long, long history, you know, in Chicago and in this country of how we criminalize populations and, and how we've done that informally, formally, whether it's through processes like redlining or even how we report crime statistics. You know, what makes the front page, what makes, you know, radio shows and headlines. You know, usually what we're talking about is violent crime. Uh, and usually what we're talking about are mm-hmm. populations that have been disenfranchised. So in 2020 and 2021, we saw high rates of homicides in Chicago. Uh, the past two years, the numbers have declined, but they're still very much high. Do you think that there are misconceptions about the numbers? Um, I don't think there are misconceptions about the numbers. I think there's a couple of framing concerns. One, one is, you know, gun violence went up in the entire country. So, you know, it's important to put that into context. It's not like Chicago went off the charts and everybody else got safer during that same time period. I mean, if you, so watch, Chicago, if you watch national coverage, you would think otherwise about Chicago. Otherwise. And actually, the cities that did worse in this country were small cities. They were the Buffaloes, the Rochesters, the New Havens, the Bridgeports of the, of this, of the country. That actually did worse than Chicago. Chicago did not do well, um, but Chicago has rebounded, as you pointed out, which is which is looking, you know, very promising. So Chicago was part of a much larger trend, uh, and it was one of the worst, you know, single year spikes we have seen since we've kept data. That that's actually a, true, mm-hmm. absolutely true, and it happened across the country, though not just Chicago. To your point, though, you wouldn't know yeah. that by looking at the paper. Is there is there too much 
or too little of a focus on the numbers, Professor? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I like numbers, but I think, you know, people don't feel rates, right? People feel what they see in their neighborhoods. They right. feel what they experience. And, you know, it's important that when somebody gets up and says, well, we had a you know 20% drop, we should feel 20% safer. That's just not how these things work. And often people's fears and perceptions don't align with statistics, but we should track things. We should care for example, that we turned, you know, last year homicides went down. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. It could have gone the other direction. So we should be monitoring those True. things, but we should not assume that that's how people act or vote or, you know, people will change their behavior based on what they see and feel in their neighborhood. They'll keep their kids inside or going from playing at the park or skip going to the store if they feel unsafe, regardless of what a rate is. Let's talk more about the work that you do. You, you look at the ways that gun violence spreads within and between people, trying to figure out who's at risk for gun violence. Can you explain? How does how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the work we've been doing, you know, over the years, my colleagues and I in our, in our center corners is trying to understand how violence moves through populations. And we know that crime concentrates in particular places, like we've all seen the maps. You don't need me to show you where those are on the maps. But even within places, there's only a small percentage of individuals that are actively involved in often disputes that lead to gun violence. You're talking three to 7%, sort of of any neighborhood, right? So people that are exposed to the same conditions that are involved in the same conditions. And actually we use a lot of techniques that, that appear like contact tracing, which mm -hmm. people are familiar from COVID. So you can trace these disputes or these literally cascades from person to person. And it lets you know kind of who's in harm's way. And it's not secret. I mean, people that are working in the field, outreach workers, victim advocates, trauma response, even police, you know, they understand the dynamics that are involved. Yeah. And what we've been doing is showing that the science, there's a science to it as well. Who is in harm's way? So the people that are most likely in harm's way, you know, one of the things that you don't read in the paper, uh, you know, the average age of a homicide victim in Chicago is almost 28 years old. That actually should, you know, when we talk about wow. the, being more specific, see, you said, wow, too. And, and that's usually people's reaction. Yeah. It's important. I made a look first, means... but you can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't see the look, but yeah. I, I can guess what it is, which it doesn't mean we shouldn't care about this increase in, in violence among young people. We should, but it means a 14-year-old and a 28-year-old need extremely different sorts of interventions and prevention efforts. A 28-year-old, you know, can't go back to CPS. They aged out of things often that are available to young people. Mm -hmm. They might have kids themselves, but they might have eviction issues or food is issues or their health issues. So one thing is they're older is to answer your question. And the most important thing that we've found, and again, this, this works in a lot of the on the ground interventions that we're working with, is that the people that are, are in har most in harm's way are the people that are like literally tied to someone who's just been shot. Right. If one of your friends has been shot or your associates has been shot, your your risk skyrockets. Mm. It goes off the charts. And oftentimes when we hear about these tragic stray bullet killings of a child, it's often their parent or someone who was around them who was the intended victim. Yeah. So literally being in these networks where violence concentrates just changes your your levels of risk uh, fundamentally. It also, though, you know, on the flip side can provide some important leverage for interventions because you know acutely, you know, who, who needs help today 
which by the way is different than who needs help tomorrow. Yeah. And so I think there are you know there are ways that we're trying to leverage some of that in efforts across the city. So in 2021 we we saw an increase in homicides in the downtown mm-hmm. area while this bulk of gun violence was happening in communities of color. What do you make of gun violence increasing downtown? Well, again, it gets the front page, so that's good that people are talking about it downtown and it's it's horrible. Um, you know, but when we looked at the, some of the violence that happened downtown, one of the important things we saw, of course, and this is important when we think about a city, is it's also tied to disputes that were going on elsewhere in the city, right? So if you really want to stop things happening downtown, you actually have to care about neighborhoods that are other, other places, right? There are disputes that got played out in public. You saw somebody at Grant Park, and you should be able to use Grant Park if you're a citizen of Chicago. You should be able to use the beaches. You should be able to rent a bike, drive along the lake, whatever it is you want to do. But it does mean that it can become a flashpoint for violence if, uh, you know, if you bump into a rival or somebody you've got a disagreement with. But it just means that looking at any one kind of neighborhood misses the point that all these things are are kind of connected. And this is true in other neighborhoods as well, not just downtown. If you look at what's happening in Albany Park, you got to know what's happening in Rogers Park. There's ties between those communities. And it's really important that, you know, as we think about strategies at a city or even, you know, regional level that we pay attention to those things. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Ahead of tonight's mayoral debate on public safety, we're breaking down different ways of understanding and measuring public safety with Andrew Papakristos, sociology professor at Northwestern, and how that shows up in the mayoral hopefuls platforms. Um, So in this election, we've got two candidates with two very different public safety approaches. Paul Vallis has run his campaign on a tough on crime platform, can you just remind us where that idea comes from and how it's shown up in policies? Wow, it's a great question too. So this uh, this phrase "tough on crime" is an old one. It actually in Chicago it even dates back to the 1850s. We had a law and order party in Chicago around the 1855 Lager beer riots. By the way, this is what you get when you ask a professor on your show. <laughs> um, but we actually elected and formed the Chicago Police Department in response. Um, to uprisings among German and Irish immigrants. Uh, And the law and order was exactly the rhetoric. But the most recent sort of law and order, tough on crime strategy actually comes from some of the first war on crimes after the LBJ administration. And of course, where we thought about increasing penalty, increasing the presence of, you know, a police force, an armed police force, uh, and seeing that as the strategy for the main strategy for crime reduction of course, the 94 crime bill was another thing that people kind of point to. So its most recent incarnation kind of dates back to the sort of waning war on poverty, which was replaced very quickly mm-hmm. by a war on crime. A great book by historian Elizabeth Hinton on that very subject. Yeah. How has tough on crime impacted black and brown communities, though? I've been reading a lot of critique that you know, <clears throat> tough on crime policies, really what they're doing is just aiming to put black and brown people in prison. What do you say to that? Well, yes, that's exactly what, the, what you know, science will show. And in part, it goes back to our first questions because it's tough on what crime, right? If, are we tough on corporate crime? Are we tough on, you know, the sorts of crimes that are happening in different communities? No, we're, t- we're tough on violent crime. We're tough on certain types of crime. Even when we think about the regulation of gun crimes, uh, permits, you know, it's, it's what's legal, what's not legal. That's a changing landscape in the United States, as, as we all know, especially in Illinois. Um, it really does, you know, 
unequally impact black and Latino communities in this, not just this, this uh, city, but this, this country because of the crimes that we prioritize sort of in that space. Um, but it does mean, you know, more, more aggressive policing and also usually longer sentence lengths. A lot of those things, you know, we've been debating over the last decades. Yeah. It's pretty clear what the negative impact is of, say, mass incarceration in particular on black and Latino. Is there evidence to suggest tough on crime policies do effectively lower homicides? Well, there's evidence that suggests policing plays a role. And this is where things tend to go sideways in conversations, right? There, there's evidence that there are some things that work in policing. Actually, the stuff that works in policing tends not to be the, the tough, I'm using air quotes, you can't see the tough stuff in okay. policing. Actually, what works in policing are, you know, focused interventions in particular areas for particular types of crimes, often when they're combined with community activities, right? So one of the most impactful strategies we've seen in Chicago used to be these you know, the call-ins where you've got participants, you've got community leadership, and you've got policing on the same page that said, this is what we're going to focus on. Yeah, We're going to tell people why we're focusing on it, and we're going to do that. But actually what you're doing is not more, you're doing less when it comes to gun violence. And, and in Chicago and cities across the country during the 90s and early 2000s, this was an impactful program. Um, but it was the opposite of ramping things up, right? It was the opposite of stop and frisk. It was, in fact, let's be specific about the behaviors we're talking about. Let's mm -hmm. get community buy-in. Um, and that those strategies do work, um, you know, in terms of policing strategies. And it's not the sort of same, you know, writ large, let's expand yeah. know, power, let's expand resources. It was in fact a targeted approach. That's just one. Um, okay. But writ large, you have to weigh that against the consequences, as you said. Now, uh, on the flip uh, side, uh, Brandon Johnson's mm -hmm. representing a view of public safety that says communities are safer when we invest in schools and the physical and mental health of residents and affordable housing. We've been hearing this more and more since 2020, Professor. Yes. Um, just yes. briefly, where is this movement drawing its roots from? And is there evidence to show that community investment, as he's discussing, works? The, the short answer is it's, an, again, an also an old movement, but there is mounting evidence that improving physical infrastructure, school infrastructure, employment infrastructure can reduce gun violence, you know, outside of the context of policing. Put those together, you know, and that becomes, you know, a potentially, you know, a larger view of public safety. But there's been a lot of development in those areas over the last 15 or 20 years from greening spaces to community violence interventions, to school and hospital-based programs, a lot of key innovations in those spaces. But a lot less time has been invested studying those things than policing, and that's really important. We just know less about them because we haven't done it or invested in it at the same level as we have policing. So have you seen models that address a need for safety now and long-term investment as well? I mean, that's the kind of, that should be the goal. Okay. <laughs> I think there have been some models in other cities that Chicago has started to emulate. You know, Los Angeles had a, a really great sort of holistic, you know, approach where you had police, community violence intervention, health, education kind of coming together under one roof and being very intentional. Yeah. And that had very good, uh, in, very you know, strong impact in LA over a period of time. You know, and I think that is one of the things that Chicago has been doing over the last, you know, five to six years, building coalitions and collaborations around, say, community violence intervention, right? trying to coordinate. I think that's a win. I think that is something that, that needs to stay centered um, because that momentum, I think that's part of the reason why 
we got safer last year. You know, the, the investments we'd been making in that since 2016, the spike in 2016 was actually, you know, larger than the spike in 2020 for a one-year increase. And Chicago mobilized then. And I think we're starting to see some of those payoffs. It's still going to take time. It's not a long time. Yeah. But I do think that's part of the winning combination because it's not, it's not all, it's not all one thing. Yeah. You well, know, we'll have to leave again, it there for now. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Andrew Papakristos is a faculty director of Corners, the Center for Neighborhood Engaged Research and Science. We appreciate your time. Great. Thanks for having me.